1. Our goal this morning is to examine Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to begin verses uh, 3 through 6. We'll briefly review where we left off so you can recall with me the context. And then we will jump into this section. And admittedly, I think uh, last week I I said my goal was to look at the three major stanzas of this hymn, one a week. And we're not going to make that, okay? It's going to take a couple of weeks just to get through this first section, this first stanza of the hymn. And uh, it's, it's, I'm constantly reminded by our church secretary as she's typing up the inserts that go in your bulletins. She's like, you have too many notes. I'm like, oh. Okay, so let's divide that into like two sermons or three sermons or whatever. But the point is, I, I want to be as, uh, you know, as helpful as possible. I want to be thorough through the book of Ephesians. So we'll take our time. It may take us a couple extra weeks to get through this section. But remind, uh, remember with me, let me remind you, the context of the book of Ephesians at large. Paul the Apostle is imprisoned in the city of Rome, if you recall. He writes to the saints in Ephesus in order to inoculate them against the Colossian heresy by teaching them to meditate upon the gospel of Christ. And that's really how he opens chapter one with this uh, just riveting hymn wherein he calls us to meditate upon the work of Christ. And this is how we approached it last time, if you recall. Paul begins in verses one and two of the uh, book of Ephesians with his address, introducing who he is, telling who he's writing to, greeting them with a not only the common Christian greeting, but a theologically significant Christian greeting, the grace and peace be unto you. But then he then launches immediately into the adoration. And we introduced this last time, verses three to 14 is the adoration, it's the hymn to the triune God. And it is incredibly profound, and it is uh, the whole point of it, as I mentioned last time, this is by way of review once more, but the purpose of this adoration is not merely to inform us or his readers, but also, it does inform us, but it is more than that. It also serves to inspire the readers to greater love and loyalty to God for his work of redemption. And this hymn is essentially a hymn, right? It's, it's, an, it's an adoration, a praise of who God is, the triune God and the Father, Son, and Spirit, what they've done for us in the process of redemption. And the whole point is to lift our gaze heavenward so we're, to where we would stand in awe of God and what he's done for us and what he will do for us. Because these stanzas are not arranged or excuse me, they're both arranged, sorry, that's a typo. They are arranged both theologically around the members of the Godhead as well as chronologically, okay? So scratch that word out in your notes if that's in there. But it's arranged theologically and chronologically. Theologically around the three members of the triune Godhead, right? The Father, Son, and Spirit. But then chronologically arranged in what the Father, Son, and Spirit have done, are doing, will do in the process of redemption. And so here is what we're going to spend the next several uh, opportunities that we have here in the book of Ephesians studying. We'll see how this hymn, beginning in verse 3 through verse 6, begins with a stanza that sings or adores God concerning his plan, the plan of God the Father, which began before the world began. So there's your chronological marker. Your theological marker is we're singing about the Father, but we're singing about what he did before the world began. He chose us, predestined us, Etc. Then we'll see the second stanza is all about the redemption of the Son. And that is what he has done. And again, when Paul is writing, that is what has not only happened within just a, you know, a few, a uh, couple of decades before Paul actually pens these words, but it's being applied now to believers in Christ. So this is what we are now experiencing, the forgiveness of sins that has been purchased through the blood of Christ. So he will sing about that in verses 7 to 12. And then lastly, he will draw our attention to the inheritance in the Spirit. Not only the fact that we have the Spirit of God's presence with us now, and that is the first installment, but what that guarantees for us as far as a future inheritance and what we will have coming in glory. And that is the yet-to-come factor of this hymn. And so our goal this morning is to look at this first stanza, and we're going to break it down into two big ideas, and we're going to cover the first idea today and the second idea the next time that we gather uh, around this book. Again, I'll be gone for a couple of weeks. Pastor Daniel will be taking you through the book of James, but then when I return, we'll get back to the book of Ephesians. So we're going to look at the hymn that is this stanza of the hymn dedicated to the Father, 
by looking at these two big ideas. First, Paul begins with this description, blessed be God, blessed be God. And we're really going to kind of look at verse 3 and verse 6 this morning, where he introduces this idea, blessed be God, and then he comes back to it and how we are to live for the praise of his glory. And so he, he informs us what to do and how to do it, if you will, at the beginning and end of this stanza. So that's what we're going to focus on today, verse 3, verse 6. Then we're going to come back next time, and we'll look at verses 4 and 5. And we ought bless God, we ought glorify God, we ought live a life of humble adoration of who he is and what he's done for us because of the blessings that we have received from God. And there are three primary blessings that we have received from God the Father, and that's what we'll talk about in verses 4 and 5, okay? So that's how we're going to look at this first uh, stanza of this blessed hymn. So if you've got your Bibles, just follow along as I read. Let's read verses 3 to 5. We'll read this uh, first stanza in its entirety. Then we'll come back and focus primarily on verses 3 and 6 this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Pause there. Now, we're just going to take, again, we're primarily, we'll dip into verse 5 a little bit as well, but we're going to primarily focus on verse 3 and 6, and take it phrase by phrase, line by line, and try to understand what Paul is getting us to, to gaze upon as we contemplate the Father and what he has done for us in the plan of redemption. But he begins in verse 3 with the line, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this Greek word where that is translated into English blessed or blessed is actually where we get our English word to eulogize. It's here in its adjective form. You might say it's, it means eulogizable. Eulogizable is God. In other words, if you were to get up, and I always say this, I'm someday going to make a t-shirt and say, you know, something along the lines of, you know, don't, you know, try to live life to where your preacher doesn't have to lie at your funeral. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> because I, I've, I've done a lot of memorial services and funerals. Let's be honest. Some of them are more fun than others in the sense that the person who has passed on was a godly individual. And, there's, and it's fun to reminisce about them, to honor their, their life and memory, to wallow in the goodness of God that was displayed in their life. But particularly when I was over in Utah, there was uh, the first memorial service I ever did. I was the assistant to my dad in Nephi, Utah. He took off. He had to be gone for like a month. I was taking things over, and somebody just happened to die in that month period. And so I called dad in a panic. I'm like, oh, no. And he's like, all right, Jeff, I'll pray for you. Have a good time, right? I'm like, okay. So, but the person who died was not a member of our church. They were an outright pagan. But the child of that person who died came to my youth group. And so I was their only church connection. And so they asked me if I'd do the funeral. And my word, I was sweating bullets. I was so scared because... When I got up to start speaking, I had nothing good to say about this lady. <laughs> you know, she was an outright pagan. And so I ended up actually going to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. <laughs> There's, you know, a time to mourn and a time to laugh. And, you know, and I walked through that passage. And then I basically gave the gospel and said, hey, if she believed this, we'll see her one day. You know, <laughs> and I left it at that because I, I couldn't say for sure. I was actually pretty sure that she wasn't a believer. And, you know, but the point is, you know, and I, I want to make a t-shirt someday where it's like, hey, you know, just live life to where your preacher doesn't have to lie at your funeral. You know, I mean, say, give me something to say where in the eulogy I can speak well of, right? That's what the word means. Eulogy is from Greek. We get into English, but it means to speak well of an individual. And to be honest, there are times where it's hard to find good things to say about some people, but not about God. That's the whole point that Paul begins. He says, let us talk about the goodness of God. But he uses it in the adjective form. In other words, God is eulogizable. In other words, when we think about God, we have no end of things to talk about that are good. His goodness, his grace, his mercy, etc. In fact, this particular Greek word occurs eight times in the New Testament, but is only used of God. God is the only one who is ultimately 
and perfectly eulogizable. We can speak well of him. So Paul begins this way. Now, these sorts of eulogies of God were actually common in Judaism. The Hebrew term was berakah, and that's what the Hebrew, you know, the Jude- in Judaism, that's what they would call it. But it's the same basic thing, where they would begin a prayer blessing God, acknowledging his goodness, his grace, contemplating some good thing about him. We call it adoration. It's the same basic idea. We adore God for all of his goodness. He is eulogizable. So Paul's adoration here is not only common in Judaism, right? In fact, Judaism was, again, was, was, it was normal practice to have some sort of eulogy at the beginning to describe the goodness of God. But Paul's is uniquely Christian in that as he works through his eulogy, his berakah, what he does is he acknowledges the triune God. That's not Judaism. That's Christianity. Because Judaism and Christianity in the ministry of Paul in the days of the book of Acts started going separate ways, did they not? Over the issue of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Christians acknowledged Jesus Christ as the second member of the triune Godhead. He is God the Son. Much, most of the Jewish population rejected that concept and they clung to old-school Judaism where they actually redefined Judaism because true Judaism is Christianity. But they really hijacked those Old Testament prophecies, reinterpreted them, kicking out Jesus as Messiah, you know, the Jesus of Nazareth as being the fulfillment of those and thus the Messiah. And so we here have this concept where as he is praising the triune God, it's uniquely Christian. And we're going to see this, we see it elsewhere throughout the scripture, where the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, are, are all mentioned in one passage and often you know, at the beginning of a passage, like in one of these sort of eulogies, like 2 Corinthians or, uh, again, Luke chapter 1, Zechariah does that. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Zechariah does that. And then uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, similar sort of uh, pattern there. So to eulogize about God, as I mentioned a moment ago, means that we acknowledge his inherent and infinite worth. That's what it means. He's one of a kind, and he's therefore worthy of praise. And we never, in fact, will reach a point where he has been praised enough because he's an infinite God. One of my, again, the the prof that uh, taught the Ephesians class in my undergrad years that was so influential upon me and and was so helpful in my spiritual walk, uh, he would mention this often. That if God is infinite, then, and, and infinite in all of his categories, like infinitely good, infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, infinitely, etc., then theoretically we should never run out of anything to say about God. We would never run out of good things to say about God because infinite means limitless. It means without boundary. The only limitations to our praise is our own ability to comprehend God. That's the only limitation because God in of himself is infinite and we will never reach a point where God has been praised enough, where we stop singing to him, we stop living loyally to him, we stop telling others about him because we've run out of things to say. No, God, that that point will never be reached. He is always worthy of our praise. He's worthy of more and more adoration and exaltation. But as he begins in verse 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. So the second portion of verse 3 describes the very first thing that makes God eulogizable. What are are the good things that we can say about God? Well, number one, right on in the list, you you know, Paul's list, is that God has blessed us. We can bless God in the sense of honoring him, singing to him, recognizing his goodness and his grace, adoring him, because he has blessed us. Now, the verb here in verse 3, meaning to bless, means to take or to make, rather, someone prosper by bestowing favor upon them. All right? God has blessed us. He has caused us to prosper because he has shined upon us with his favor. That's the idea. We are blessed by God. Now, this idea is, in fact, unique to the New Testament and the Old Testament. In fact, that Greek word, the LXX, remember, that just means Septuagint. It's referring to the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So this particular Greek word appears 400 times in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And then it appears uh, also in the New Testament. But this word never appears in classical Greek. 
So as one scholar pointed out, in other words, Yahweh blesses his people, but Zeus never did, right? Sorry, Zeus, I'm not talking about that Zeus, our Zeus, right? I'm talking about the Greek god Zeus. But the idea is that in classical Greek literature, they don't view their gods as being gods who bless them. They don't have the unmerited grace and favor of their gods. Rather, the Greco-Roman gods are fickle. They decide one way to, you know, one day to the next, whether or not they will bless you, whether or not they will countenance your presence, etc. They're fickle, they're untrustworthy, but not the God of the Bible. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is blessed because he blesses us. And that sort of loving favor is what Paul wants us to know, to recognize, to sing about, to recognize the goodness and grace of God. But he goes on in verse 3 to tell us that he has blessed us with spiritual blessings. Or, to be all the more emphatic, he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. I want to contemplate those, those couple of ideas that he finishes verse 3 out with. The idea that we are blessed, but we are blessed with spiritual blessings. Now these blessings, meaning they're, they're labeled as spiritual blessings, is not necessarily opposed to physical, because God can bless us in physical ways, but the term spiritual means proceeding from the Holy Spirit. In other words, it includes the Holy Spirit, and it comes primarily from the Holy Spirit. Recall that if we were to take the time, and we won't here today for sake of time, but if you were to go to Ezekiel 36, uh, verse 27, other place in the Old Testament, but that's kind of your core passage in the Old Testament, where it's predicting the coming new covenant. It's predicting this era where God will inaugurate a new sort of relationship with his people. And this concept, Isaiah will call it the everlasting covenant. Uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah will use the term everlasting covenant or new covenant. Jeremiah in particular favors the term new covenant which is why when we get to the latter third of our Bible, we call this the New Testament or the New Covenant literature. It tells us that the New Covenant has begun, that we are participants, members of the New Covenant. Well, according to the prophets of old, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of the major prophets will will highlight this reality. But when that New Covenant is inaugurated, the primary blessing that we will enjoy as New Covenant believers is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That is a huge deal. It is a huge deal. And if you don't understand that, then you are greatly impoverished in your view of Christianity. You don't understand the blessings that we have in Christ through the Holy Spirit. The fact that we have the presence of the Holy Spirit and that He is making us, fashioning us into the image of Christ. The book of Ephesians is going to have a lot to say about that. He's going to talk, especially when we get to that latter portion, uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6, when he gives practical instruction on how to live everyday life. He's going to anchor so much of that back to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And he will say that we must walk in the Spirit, right? We must be filled with the Spirit. The the New Testament gives us many commands regarding how we have and, and how we ought then relate to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so that's the primary meaning of that phrase, what he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Every possible blessing that comes from the Spirit, including the Holy Spirit, is ours in Christ because of, of our identity in Christ. We have been granted these blessings. But we've also been granted these blessings, it says, in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, give me a few minutes to develop this thought. This, to me, candidly, is one of the first thoughts that captured my imagination in my study of the book of Ephesians. When I started understanding what Paul means when he describes this place that he calls the heavenlies, it just helped me understand not only the book of Ephesians, but, but my place in the plan and purposes of God. And it was, it was so incredibly helpful to me, and I want to do my very best to try and reduplicate that for you so you can understand and begin to grasp the meaning of this. Now, the term heavenlies or in heavenly places, depending on your translation, is referring to the location or perhaps even better, the word realm, the realm of existence that we know as heaven. This particular phrase, in the heavenlies, is going to show up five times in the book of Ephesians. Paul is going to talk much about it. We're going to see it here in Ephesians 1.3. We're going to see it again in Ephesians 1.20. We're going to see it again in Ephesians 2.6, Ephesians 3.10, and Ephesians 6.12. And we're going to see this concept in John 3.12 where Jesus says that 
No man has seen, right, or no man has, has been to heaven except he, the Son of Man, who has descended from heaven. And he's referring to the reality that there is another place or a realm or a location wherein we see, in, again, his text here is that our blessings are primarily in this other realm of existence and that we cannot see that realm yet, but we will one day enter that realm. There is a real place, a real realm, a real sphere of existence that Paul describes as the heavenly places that we must realize that we are destined for that. We are heading there as believers in Christ, and our blessings are primarily going to be there. doesn't mean that we don't have blessings now. We do have blessings now, but the ultimate state of blessedness, perfection, utopia, life as it was intended to be lived at the original creation— that will await our entrance into this realm, this realm of existence. So what is the heavenlies? Well, according to the scripture, and just take, and I encourage you, just take those five references in Ephesians, and you'll start seeing just descriptions of it. But we can link it to other passages in the scripture that describe this realm. To summarize, the heavenlies is a real place with real things, such as a throne, angels, a temple, a city. Read those passages of Scripture that deal with this, and we see a a chronicle of things that are there. These things and beings are real, and they do exist, but are simply unseen by our physical eyes now. We will one day see them. And not only will we one day see them, but there have been holy men of God, that the Bible says, have seen this in ages past, down through the ages, and they've described what it looks like. Moses, for instance, and the 70 elders saw this place, or rather the base of it, in Exodus chapter 24, we'll get to that in due time in our study of the book of Exodus, but it describes as they're on the slope of Sinai. They look up and they behold the base of the throne of God and they describe its color and what it looks like. Daniel will later see it with more detail. In chapters 10 and 12, he describes uh, that various elements come out in his description, his record there in Daniel chapters 10 to 12. Ezekiel also saw this. And he gave us perhaps the most detailed description anywhere in the scripture in Ezekiel chapter 1. John, the apostle, also would see it hundreds of years later, and he would come back with similar descriptions. Revelation chapters 4 and 5. We have a number of places, and that's not an exhaustive list, but we have a number of places in the scripture where holy men of God, prophets of old, got a glimpse into the heavenlies, that realm of existence. And they saw it, and they described it, and they were moved by it, they were enamored by it. I didn't include it in the list, but Paul arguably is the person he's describing. He's describing himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But he's describing that there, this, this realm which he saw is so incredible. He says, it's beyond my ability to describe. And this concept is, is, is threaded throughout the scripture. In fact, if we to continue to study the scripture, we would discover that one called Lucifer was at one time the greatest of these creatures that, that surrounded the throne of God. That he was the light bearer, according to Ezekiel. He stood before God and bore the light of God. We also will know uh, from the scriptures of two other angelic beings that inhabit this realm. And we know them by name. There are many other angels, the scriptures declare. But we only know two others by name. That would be Michael and Gabriel. And these are the only other named scriptures or angels in the scripture. But the scripture is clear. It's emphatic that there are beings of great beauty, splendor, and power that inhabit this realm. But the whole point of these passages, when you summarize them, is this reality that all of these, what you might call accoutrements and instruments, the throne, the city, the angels, their, their, their beauty, their beaming bright, all of this, they're simply designed for one primary thing, and that is to bring glory to God. The heavenly realm exists as the throne room of God. And the throne room is accompanied by beauty and grandeur that you can barely, uh, well, you can't, according to Paul, you can't even describe it or imagine it, but one day we will experience it. And the whole point of the existence of that realm and that throne room and that heavenly entourage is to simply bring glory to God. Earlier we sang the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. And before we sang, Brother Bob read Ephesians, or I'm sorry, I'm reading Ephesians. He read Isaiah 6 and verse 3 where it describes the seraphim. The word seraphim, seraph in Hebrew, means fiery, burning ones, ones beaming bright like fire. And he says, these seraphim are hailing one to the other, 
singing that repetitive hymn, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And according to the book of Revelation, they do this day and night without ceasing. Or Revelation also echoes that. Isaiah mentions it as well. But the whole point of those accoutrements, those instruments, are to bring glory to God. So think of the mighty throne, the glorious heavenly beings, the heavenly court, all serve to underscore and to accentuate, to put an exclamation point upon the reality that God is majestic in his splendor, in his beauty. That's the whole point of this realm. I, I, for instance, this was several years ago when I was teaching through, I think it was a VBS adult class, actually, and I was teaching through the book of Esther. And I gave you all, uh, those that were there, I gave you a a video recreation because when I was at the uh, Oriental Institute in Chicago, they had a video which was a computer-generated recreation of the courtroom, or the throne room in the court, of the Persian emperors at Persepolis. And what is so fascinating about this is it is it's historically one of the most grand throne rooms that we've ever discovered. The remains of that still exist to this day. And the whole point of that computer regeneration was to try and show you what it would have looked like in its heyday. And it was an impressive structure. And the whole point was that the, the city of Persepolis is where the, the Persian monarchs would sit enthroned when their people, their subjects, their peons, brought tribute unto them. And the whole point was of that temple and the throne room, etc., was to have a shock and awe effect that when you show up from the far reaches of the Persian Empire, say you're coming from Greece, until the Greeks kind of got out of the empire, if you remember your history, but if you're coming from Greece or you're coming from Iran or you know, you're coming from uh, the far reaches of you know, Israel or elsewhere and you're coming to show up at the throne of the Persian monarch, then you walk into that throne room and you are enamored with the beauty. You are intimidated by the power and the grandeur of the Persian uh, empire. That was the whole point is they build it on a grandiose scale so that when you walk up, You are in shock and awe. You are enamored. You are intimidated by the power of the Persian Empire. And you would say, I will will never resist the Persians. That was the whole point of it. Well, think about that in in an earthly sense. Magnify that by infinity. And you're starting to get a glimpse and a grasp of what it looks like, what it would be, the purpose of it, when it comes to the throne room of God in heaven. But here's one step further. Let me take it one step further. What more, in other words, let me pose it in the form of a question, what more could God do to bring himself glory? When you, con- when you contemplate that heavenly throne room, when you contemplate the beauty that is this heavenly throne room, what could God do more to bring himself even more glory? Answer, according to the book of Ephesians, Paul tells us very ex- explicitly, The thing that God is doing to bring himself even more glory than the throne of heaven itself is that he is working in and through the church. That God has invented and created and empowered and filled with his spirit a special group of people that he labels the church, the ecclesia, those who have been called out and empowered by God, by his spirit, by the crosswork of Christ, and through the church, both now and in ages to come, God is going to use us as the means by which he can glorify himself all the more. In other words, and we'll come back to this at the end of the hour, uh, well, in fact, I'm, I'm going there right now, but is we ourselves will one day join that entourage. Because if you can imagine walking into that throne room of the ancient Persians, and you're walking up to this throne, and thrones are always elevated. Did you ever notice that? Thrones are always elevated. Why? So that you feel small and insignificant as you're approaching the king. You approach the mighty monarch and he sits enthroned in beauty and grandeur and power and he has soldiers flanking both sides. He has an entourage of those who adore him, who revere him, who are loyal to him. And the bigger the entourage, the more power and grandeur is deserved of the king. Well, one day we are going to join that entourage. We're going to be there in person. And Paul says, we need to live in light of that reality. So stick with me. Verse three, that's what I just finished explaining. Okay, took me 30 minutes. But now we're gonna skip over verse four and five because I I just don't have the time to get back to it. All right, we will come back to it later, but I don't have time right now to go walk through it. So we're going to come back 
in weeks to come and look at the three primary blessings that he has bestowed upon us. But I want to skip down to the end of verse 5, 5b and into, chapter, into verse 6. And I want to talk about, because it's a it's related concept, all right? and, and I want you to see this. I want, to, I want this to click in your mind so that you can join the chorus now and later when it comes to singing and adoring our God. But notice the end of verse 5, end of verse 6, the motivation that Paul gives us as to why God is doing this. Why is God blessing people like us who do not deserve it? Who is not only blessing us, but he's going to give us access to this heavenly realm. We're going to join the entourage in heaven's glory one day. Why is he doing this? Well, again, next time we're going to examine the glorious blessings that we have from the Father, mentioned in verses 4 and 5. But now I want you to consider the Father's motivation for it all. In other words, why would God grant to us all of these blessings? What could possibly motivate God to bestow such blessing upon undeserving sinners? Our text gives us two reasons. End of verse 5 and end of verse 6, he gives you two reasons. First is it says it's according to the pleasure of his will or his desire. Look at verse 5b. All right, he says, again, in the beginning of verse 5, he's predestinate, uh, predestinated us into adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Or the good pleasure of his, the word will, can mean either he's willed it, he decided to do it, or it can also be translated desire, his pleasure, that he just wanted to do it. Let's contemplate this phrase for just a moment, minute. The idea of the good pleasure of his will or his pleasing desire is simply this. The fact that we have received blessing is based entirely, according to Paul, is based entirely upon the goodness and decision of God Almighty. As Arnold, Clinton Arnold put it this way, he says, quote, God took great delight in thinking of his future people and being kindly disposed toward them, end quote. That's the idea. When he says, according to the good pleasure of his will, the pleasure of his desire, is that it pleased God He took great delight in just thinking about blessing us. And he wanted to do it. He simply, out of the goodness of his grace, as I I like to say it this way, and and I typically connect this to uh, Peter's rendering of it in 1 Peter chapter 1, but the idea of God's blessedness and that he has bestowed blessing upon us, I like to say that God's nature, his character, is so amazing that it's it's the it's like god has an infinite surplus of grace and mercy that he has to decide to use it somehow some way because grace and mercy by its very nature needs to be given out in graciousness and so god invents the way for him to vent and express his goodness and his mercy and his grace and his love and the best thing he can come up with is to create you and me and to redeem us from our sinful, fallen state and to exalt us to his heavenly throne room. That's the greatest display that gives vent to his grace and his mercy that the mind of the infinitely wise God could invent. That's what he came up with. And he just, he wants to do it. And he's doing it by his, his simple pleasure. Again, the word pleasure means God did not have to bless us. He is in no way obligated to bless us. You have to understand this. That when we get to this place in our spiritual lives, when we realize I am blessed because God is good. I am not blessed because I deserve it. If you in any way, shape, or form believe that you deserve the blessing of God, then you're missing the boat. You know what I'm saying? You're missing what the Bible is screaming at you. God is good and gracious, and we have received it because it says he was pleasured to do so. Reality is, this is entirely dependent upon his goodness and desire to bless us. He has no obligation to do so. We don't, he doesn't owe us anything, but he gives us everything. Why? Because he wanted to do it. He was pleased to do so. But secondly, verse 6 tells us that he'll do it to the praise of the glory of his grace. You see, he wanted to give vent to his mercy, to his grace. So he redeems us, creates us, redeems us. But you see, when he gives vent to that, it also has a reciprocal effect. It has an effect upon God and his reputation. Namely, it brings him praise. It unveils his splendor. It helps us see 
how good and great and awesome he is. That's the point of it. The Greek word here that is translated praise, to the praise of the glory of his grace, this word praise means praise, applause, commendation, recognition. In other words, God is glorious. And and this is also a helpful concept. When we praise God and we sing praises to him, when we pray to him, when we adore God, think about it. Are we adding to God's greatness? No, we're not. Because by definition, you can't add to perfection. He's already perfect. You don't alter him in any way. He's already perfect. He doesn't need any alterations. He doesn't need any additions or subtractions. He is perfect. He is the blessed God. He is perfectly eulogizable as he is. So what is the point of praise? I'm not adding praise to him. I am simply, I like the way the psalmist puts it. We are giving God the glory due unto his name. We're giving God the glory due unto his name. The reality is when we praise God, all we're doing is acknowledging what he already is. But it's like pulling back the curtain. It's like lifting the veil to where we can see with clarity and allow others, help others to see with greater clarity the beauty and perfection that is God. When I pray to him, when I praise him, when we sing about the goodness of God, his greatness, his redemption, whatever, all we're doing is stating back to God truth that he already knows about himself. It's not like we're informing him about anything. It's not that we're adding to his grandeur. We're simply acknowledging his grandeur. We're helping others see it. We're pulling back the curtain so it can be revealed. It can peek out from beyond the veil, that we can catch a glimpse of the glory that is God. And that's the idea of praising the glory of his grace. Vincent puts it this way, one com- or in scholars, a Greek scholar, he says this, quote, praise is called forth from the children of God by this divine glory, which thus appears in grace, end quote. In other words, the glory of God is sometimes described as the sum of all of his attributes, or the idea is that it's, it's the visible, tangible display, the brightness, the beaming of God's beauty and his splendor. All that God is, when you put it on display, that's his glory. And we have many examples of this. I gave you several before of people who caught a glimpse of the heavenly throne room. They caught a glimpse, just a sliver, of what God's glory looks like. Guys like Moses, guys like John, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah. And yet, across the board, how do they all react when they see God's glory unveiled? They're overwhelmed. That's right, it's a jaw-dropping face falling to the earth, prostrate yourself before this awesome glory. I like to say the word glory, remember in Hebrew, this, it comes out more in Hebrew than it does in Greek, but the Hebrew root for the word glory, remember this? It means what? It means weight. It means weight, splendor, something that is huge, it's grandiose, it's awesome. And the word awesome means it causes awe, that the result, when we see it, we are in awe. And glory, I like to say, when God shows up and he reveals his glory, even in limited ways, because in the scripture, the Bible is very clear, we are yet to see God in all of his glory. That's what we're going to participate in at the end of the day, the end of the ages, right? But throughout history, God has unveiled his glory in little ways, like the Mount of Transfiguration, the glorious miracles of Christ what God calls in the Old Testament his mighty deeds, his grand resume of supernatural feats that he has performed, like the ten plagues, right? the Red Sea crossing, the Jordan crossing, right? the walls of Jericho falling down. Right? We could add to the list. But the great mighty deeds of God are glimpses into his glory, glimpses of his greatness and his grace. But the greatest glimpse that we have ever received of his glory, according to Paul, is the display of his grace that he has lavished upon us in Christ. That's the next stanza. I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. But in verses 7 to 12, he will talk about how he has lavished. And I love that term, right? The word lavish, what does that mean? Does it mean a little dab? Right? It's like if you're lathering on sunscreen, right? You just kind of put a dollop 
right on the back and just say, hey, right there, you're going to be fine. (laughs) No, no. Lavish means you pour it out, you squeeze out the bottle, and it's everywhere. It's an overabundant surplus amount, more than adequate to do the job, and then some. That's what the word lavish means. According to Paul, the greatest glimpse that we have received, which again, think about that. Imagine yourself as Peter, James, and John on the top of Mount Transfiguration, and you get to see Christ beaming bright, the glory of the transfigured Christ. Paul says, and Peter will also say elsewhere in in 2 Peter chapter 1, that the glimpse that we get of his grace in the gospel is in a sense greater than what Peter, James, and John experienced on top of that mountain. Because they saw Christ in his splendor, but they were yet to understand all that was in store for them. They didn't understand the fact that Christ was going to die, rise again, send the Spirit. All of that was, it was right over their head. They were still rejecting and resisting those ideas. When Jesus was saying, I must die, I must rise again, they were rejecting those ideas. But you and I in the gospel have a fuller explanation, a better understanding, a deeper, more profound, as we sang about earlier, how deep the Father's love for us, vast beyond all measure. Where do we get those ideas? We get it not from the Mount of Transfiguration. We get it from the gospel. The reality of the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, the sending of the Spirit, the explanation of the meaning of those events given to us in the Scripture. As Paul or Peter or John elsewhere will just elaborate on the goodness of God, the grace of God as displayed in the gospel. That is the glimpse into God's glory that we get. And when we get it, as Vincent says, it prompts praise. Praise is called forth. In other words, it's like when we get that glimpse, we can't help but praise God. And this is one of those things that, you know, I've had people say this before uh, to me, ask me this, maybe you've thought this before, but it's actually rather revealing when someone says, okay, hey, what does this mean? Like, how, I, I can't really get into praising God. I don't like to sing. I don't like to pray. I don't like to, you know, read the scripture or whatever. Then it, it helps, in a sense, diagnose the problem that when we are unmoved at the God of grace and the gospel of God, the glory of Christ displayed in the gospel, if we are unmoved by that, then it means we've never fully recognized it. We've never seen it. Because praise is the normal reaction to those who see God's grace. Does that make sense? And so, again, I love how Vincent puts that. Praise is called forth from the children of God by his divine glory, which which appears in grace. So, again, to put it another way, the base reason, the fundamental reason, the purpose, the intention behind God doing what he has done and will do is for the furtherance, the demonstration, the magnification of his blessed name. That the reason he is going to, he has and will bless us, according to Paul, is that he's doing this to the praise of the glory of his grace. He wants us to praise him. He wants us to see and to acknowledge his goodness and his grace. And so this gives us the base reason why God does what he does. You ever wondered that? Why does God let this happen? Why does God let that happen? Why does God do this or do that? The answer is always because it's according to the pleasure of his will and to the praise of his glory. Because all that God does is for that purpose of ultimately bringing a magnification that we might see in a better way, in a greater way, with greater clarity, with greater depth, with greater understanding, we might see and behold the glory of God. That's his purpose behind it. This is, as we said uh, a couple of weeks ago, or last week, actually, I think we talked about this idea of the purpose behind all history. No, that was two weeks ago. Here's in my introduction, trust me. We talked about the idea of the, the philosophy of history. Why does history happen? What's the point of it? Ephesians equips us with the answer. All of history ultimately is for the glory of God. Everything that happens or doesn't happen is for the purpose of, in the end, bringing greater glory to God. Again, this whole concept is is important for us to realize that God does not bless us because we deserve it. Rather, God and God did not bless us because he felt bad for us. God rather blessed us ultimately because he will get the final credit and honor and praise for it. 
for blessing us. In blessing us, God gets more glory. He gets more praise. In other words, we get to see it better. We get to see all of God's attributes on full display through creation and redemption. So God's great act of electing and loving sinners uniquely and specifically amplifies one particular aspect of his glory, and that is namely his grace. And God is under no obligation to show kindness toward us, yet he did so. And this projects his grace into a whole new realm of goodness. That's what Paul is trying to get us to realize. But I want to take it one step further. Is I want you to recognize this, all right? And then we'll, I want to savor this thought for a few minutes, and then we'll transition. Because, and what we're going to do is, you know, we're going to have the kids come over, but I want, I, I'm going to have Daniel come up uh, at the end of the service and lead us in a song. Because how appropriate is it to talk about adoration and singing as a you know, prompting praise for God and then to do so, right? So we'll do that in just a moment. But recognize that, in a sense... Verse 6 has a temporary, that is in this life right now, application, such as singing a hymn to the glory of God, which we'll do in just a moment. But it also has an eschatological one. Now remember, what does eschatological mean? All right, are you all with me? Eschatological is a big fancy word. It comes from Greek. Eschaton is the Greek word for last or end of times, last days. Eschatological means that which pertains to the end of days. The final climax of history, the coming of Christ, the eternal state, when we are in the heavenly realm, when we're granted entrance into the heavenly city, when we will stand aside the cherubim and the seraphim, and we will sing the holy, 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 along with them in praise and adoration of our God. That is, again, this, this verse has both a temporary and an eschatological, an end times application. So I want you to consider this with me before I invite Daniel up to, to lead us in song. Our purpose in redemption is to glorify God. That's right now what we ought to be doing. And, by the way, let me elaborate on that just a second. How do we glorify God? I use that phrase a lot. I, I say it redundantly on purpose. Why do I say it? What does it mean to glorify God? Again, it means to acknowledge his glory, to adore it, to help communicate it to other people. How do we do that? Well, we do it through a variety of ways. Singing is one. Praying to God. Whenever we pray, prayer by definition is us coming to a superior, us coming to someone who can do something for us we can't do for ourselves. It's acknowledging our neediness, and we're coming to the one who can you know, meet that need. That honors God. It reveals his glory. It acknowledges his glory when we pray, when we sing. When we teach, when we preach, when we read the scripture, we're acknowledging that this is the word of God. So I'm going to read it, understand it, and place myself underneath its authority. That honors God because it is acknowledging that he's the authority over our lives that we must submit to. But how do we do that specifically? Well, Ephesians equips us with the answer. First, knowing God and what he's done for us. The declarative statements of chapters 1, 2, 3. But also then, as we'll get to it, chapters 4, 5, 6, the practical application of it. In other words, I glorify God by obeying God in my marriage. Obeying God in my individual choices regarding purity and holiness. Obeying God in my workplace and being the best, whether it's employer or employee, that I can be. I honor God as being the best child that I can be. Being submissive and obedient to my parents. Honoring my father and my mother. Those are commands that are very specific. And when we obey those commands, we glorify God. In what way? We acknowledge by obeying the command that God has the authority and I love him. What does Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. In obedience, I reveal the fact, acknowledge the fact that God is in charge. He deserves my obedience. He's worthy of my submission and my loyalty. Those, again, that's the basic gist of the scriptural idea of giving glory to God. There's lots of different mechanisms and ways to do it, but ultimately it's acknowledging that God is glorious. And if I'm not living in obedience or submission or praise to God, then I'm doing the opposite of living for his glory. Rather, I'm living for my glory. I want, as Chuck Crabtree always says, I want to clip off the coupons of God's glory. Praise the Lord, but man, God couldn't have done it without me, right? 
that's clipping off the coupon, right? We, we want to acknowledge God's goodness and grace and then whoop, just kind of slip ourselves in there and say, well, I, deliver, I deserve just a sliver of that glory, right? Recognize my awesomeness as we recognize God's. We don't do that. That's not what it's all about. Rather, we are to give him all glory and praise. But that's now, right? So the first line on your notes, our purpose in redemption is to glorify God right now. But we also will one day join the heavenly chorus. That's Revelation 4, 5, elsewhere. We will join the heavenly chorus that sings praise to the greatness and goodness of God. Yet we ought live now in light of that, that future and let his glory motivate us as it motivates him. If that's his primary purpose and motivation for all things, it needs to be ours. We must model that, mirror that. And so think about this thought for just a moment, and I'll invite Daniel up and we'll be done. But this eschatological joining of the chorus, again, go back to that Persepolis scene. Go back to the mighty throne room, again. And the reason I go back to that is not because the Persian you know, empire in any way, you know, it just gives you, it can't comp- compare or correspond to the heavenly one, but it gives you a finite picture. It helps you visualize what it looks like for a monarch to have you know, the accoutrements of glory, to demonstrate his power, his wealth, etc., his, uh, you know, his status, his position. But imagine one day, and I think about this often, particularly when, you know, a loved one dies. I think of that passage in Second Peter chapter 1, where it describes how we will be granted abundantly, that God will minister to us an abundant entrance into the heavenly kingdom. Now, again, the abundant entrance into the heavenly kingdom, what you should visualize is this idea of approaching the throne room. Can you put yourself there? One day you're going to be there. If you're a believer in Christ, one day you will appear there. You will be transported and granted access to this heavenly kingdom, the the control room to the entire universe, the throne room of God. And when you are approaching that, just imagine those pearly gates described for us in the book of Revelation. Imagine the tunnel that you must walk through to get into the heavenly city. That's described in Revelation chapter 1. The glorious foundation made of 12 different stones. That is this, you have this gate, an angel on one side or the other, who is guarding the entrance to that gate. When you approach that gate, he opens a book and he checks. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And he checks that book to see if your name is in it. If your name is in it, because you're a citizen of the kingdom, you're a believer in Christ, you have been granted the Holy Spirit as the first you know, down payment of your, uh, your, your inheritance, then you're granted entrance. The gate is, you know, you're granted access. You walk through this gate, the tunnel that walks through the wall of this mighty city. You come to the other side and you see, literally, can I say, the light at the end of the tunnel? But you get through the other side, and what's on the other side? You have the glorious presence of God. So bright, so beaming, that the book of Revelation says, we don't need the sun, moon, or stars because of the brightness. Isaiah, remember this, Isaiah chapter 30 indicates that the presence of God may well be seven times brighter than the sun. It's beaming with bright, bright light. You walk through, you see it. But in... The center of that city is the throne of God. You are brought through this magnificent, huge city. You're brought to the throne room. The doors are opened wide. You are ushered in with throngs of people that are believers also in the Lord Jesus. They have been granted access through that same gate because their name was in the Lamb's book of life. And now you you gather with excitement, with eagerness, your shoulder to shoulder bumping in this, this multitude that is beyond number, the book of Revelation tells us. And we jostle in to find position and take our place in this mighty throne room. And the angels arise, the seraphim, the cherubim, right? And just try and, again, read the scripture, what they look like, pretty intense. And try and envision them surrounding the throne. We see the throne of God, the glory of God shining from it. And now the angelic choir involves us, welcomes us to open our mouth in praise when we see that glory. As Revelation 22 says, we behold God's face. First time in human history where we will behold God's face. 
And when I see it, and when you see it, our only proper response is praise. Our only proper response is to sing with the greatness and goodness, uh, sing of the greatness and goodness of God with all my strength. All that is in me is to praise the Lord. Can you picture that? Can you visualize that? Can you put yourself there? Okay, I know this is a bit of a step down. But that is what's going to happen. Right now, we're going to practice. Okay? I want you to warm up. Me, 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 me. Warm up your voice. Yeah, bring them in. Bring them in, Zeus. Let the kids come in. Right? The jostling hordes. Right? As we just said. Right? They're all coming in to find their spot. All right? And we are going to sing to the glory of God. So, Dana, come on up. Pianist, take your place. Whoever's playing the piano for us, is it Emily? Thank you so much. Come on up here, and quite appropriately so, all right, um, we're going to sing the song, Come Praise and Glorify. Now, again, this has been a song of the month in the past. Um, the, the lyrics are taken right out of Ephesians chapter 1, which is so why, why it's so fun and so appropriate for us to sing this passage. So as we work our way through it, and again, we haven't taught through all of Ephesians chapter 1. We've got a lot more to do, but nonetheless... Notice how these lyrics mirror the language, the line by line, right there out of Ephesians chapter 1. All right? So we're going to sing this together. So, but yeah, stand up, right? Stand up. Everyone's got to stand up because you sing better when you're standing. I'm just saying. I don't want to be critical. I'm just, you know, just saying. All right. So, Pastor Daniel, come on up, my friend. Amen. Let's sing. Come praise and glorify our God, the Father of our Lord. In Christ he has in heavenly realms his blessings on us poured. For pure and blameless in his sight he destined us to be. And now we've been adopted through his Son eternally, to the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace, to the praise of your glory, you are the God who saves. Come praise and glorify our God, who gives his grace in Christ. In Him our sins are washed away, redeemed through sacrifice. In Him God has made known to us the mystery of His will, that Christ should be the head of all His purpose to fulfill. To the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace, to the praise of your glory, you are the God who saves. Come praise and glorify our God, for we believe the word, and through our faith we have a seal, the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit guarantees our hope until redemption's done, until we join in endless praise to God the three in one, to the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace, to the praise of your glory. You are the God who saves. Amen. Y'all may be seated. Thanks, my friend. Let's close in a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Gracious Father, thank you for the glory of the cross, the glory of your grace displayed in the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the glory that we will one day behold that will prompt within us endless praise. Lord, we long for that day. And we pray that you would help us now to live in light of it, to recognize that you do all things for ultimately the praise of your glory. And might we 
mirror that. Might we model that? May we recognize that our lives are simply meant to serve through creation and redemption. We are meant to serve that ultimate purpose of your glory, unveiling it, telling others about it, acknowledging it by the way that we live our lives. So bless us, we pray, as we go our separate ways here today, as we go about our week, as we function in our various roles, or as, as employer, employee, child, spouse, parent, grandparent, might we live to the praise of your glory. We thank you for all of these things, and we ask your blessing upon them. In Christ's name we pray, amen. God bless you all. You are dismissed.